0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
1: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: So you guys, I'm actually, I'm kind of depressed that I haven't seen any cicadas where we live.
2: Well, you live downtown.
0: I don't live downtown. I mean, downtown-ish.
2: He has a garden. He has dirt. I live in a leafy neighborhood. There will be cicadas. Just wait, Shane. Just Mm, you wait. I I don't know. Our neighborhood is already, it is both a cicada, like Lollapalooza, and a cicada massacre simultaneously. Mm.
0: I was at a colleague's house the other day and witnessed the massacre. Yeah, they are (laughs) punch drunk. These birds are just like feasting. This is just you can shameless.
2: Hear it in the bird song, they're so happy. They're like oh celebrating God. and eating, and no matter how many they eat, there will be more.
1: Yeah, that's yes. the thing. Is the cicadas <laughs> have a demographic bomb that's going <laughs> off. The birds can eat as much as they want, but the cicadas are going to overwhelm them with procreation. And,
2: uh, oh, I was going to say, it's like the forces of Sauron.
1: <laughs> I mean, the oh birds, God. you know. The birds can win every battle, but they're going to lose this war.
0: This is the most hedonistic display. It's just flying, screwing, and eating. Yeah, It is right. like, it is a Roman orgy. What we would
2: all wish for. Yeah. Well, who can blame
0: them? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the commission edition we haven't had a title that rhymes in quite some time. That's right. Yeah. The Commission edition. How
1: about the Sedition Commission edition?
0: Ah, sedition even even Commission. That's even better. I like that.
1: Have we ever had a name change in mid-episode like this? I before? think
0: we have. Like there was sometime, I may mean, feel like like a month ago, like we did something where like I did the title, listeners will remember this, and then Like, I think maybe Susan came up with something or Tammy, like, really good. And we said, oh, hell yes, we're doing that. I feel like it involves scoops or ice cream. I don't know. I could just be making this up. But it did happen.
1: All right. Well, we're getting an, an, an amended title today
0: fine so for 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 listeners when you see this it'll be i'm gonna i'm gonna type this right now for jen this edition Commission.
1: Really, it's really coherent when you talk on the podcast with the pen in your mouth
0: yeah listen don't you don't you talk to me about this,
1: this. Is a
2: working journalist
0: don't you that's right this it's mighty my friend <laughs> <laughs> i am here in the virtual jungle studio with my good friends ben wittes and Tamara and Wittis, and they're cicadas hi everybody Hey. Will your cicada hey. come up? Will you have your cicadas and your birds on the show today?
2: <laughs> Not today. They haven't started singing yet. Give them a week or two.
0: I remember, by the way, I can't remember if I told this story. When, I think I did. When I was like nine, when we lived in Nashville, and there was another one of these 17-year broods. It was it was truly epic. But ever since then, I've never replicated that experience. And we used to like catch well, the cicadas. And oh, we had so much they fun.
1: They will be epic up here. So come up yeah, for a come drink. come visit
0: We'll we'll have you up.
1: They're at high singing around sort of late morning, high noon, and that's when they're like punk rocking.
0: Well, they sound very considerate to do that, not early in the morning or late at night. That's very good. Well, very good. On the podcast this week, fighting intensifies in Israel and the Gaza Strip as President Biden pleads for a ceasefire. Lawmakers debate setting up a commission to investigate the January 6th attack and a New York state investigation into the Trump organization is now exploring potential criminal conduct. Sounds so ominous when you say it that way. Let us start with the situation in Gaza and in Israel. Um, I guess the big news today is that President Biden is calling for a, as I think he put it, a path to ceasefire. So not a ceasefire, but a path to ceasefire. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had earlier said the Israeli military was, quote, taking care of objectives, adding that we're not standing with a stopwatch. The conflict is uh, entered into, I think it's its 10th day now. Continuing this exchange of rocket fire from Palestinian militants in Gaza with, uh, of course, reciprocal, well, I shouldn't say reciprocal, responding airstrikes by the Israelis, the casualty numbers are obviously quite uneven as they are. Normally in conflicts like this, Israel has been under a great deal of criticism as well for demolishing a building that housed the Associated Press Bureau there in Gaza as well as Al Jazeera offices, but Israeli officials said that it was a Hamas intelligence office that was also in the building. There were no deaths reported, I think, in that strike, but obviously that has got a huge amount of attention and you know, has kind of focused attention on what many see as the disproportionate nature of these exchanges. But Tammy, let's just start with the big news, I guess, today that Biden is calling for this path to ceasefire. Just to get us started, how likely is that to happen? What are the incentives for both sides in this conflict to stop the fighting soon?
2: Yeah. Um, so I think that there's sort of in theory incentives and in practice incentives, In theory, both sides need to be able to say that they've achieved something meaningful before halting the fighting. For the Israelis, that means a significant degradation of Hamas's capabilities that they hope will prevent or at least delay the next round of Israel-Hamas violence. For Hamas, that means winning some concessions, not only in terms of uh, access for goods and people in and out of the Gaza Strip, but more particularly around Jerusalem, which was the proximate you know, reason, the excuse that Hamas used for beginning to shoot these rockets was solidarity with Palestinians in, in Jerusalem. So whether you know, there will be enough in whatever ceasefire arrangement is reached for the two sides to make that claim, they can find a way to make that claim. And that takes us to the practicalities. The practicalities is the Israeli government, the Israeli prime minister, the military, they know well from repeated rounds with Hamas that there is a hard limit to how much they can achieve in terms of destroying Hamas's capability to wage this kind of conflict, doing it only from the air. So they either have to go in on the ground or they have to do a much heavier level of aerial assault. And either of those would significantly increase civilian casualties, and the uh, ground invasion would significantly increase Israeli military casualties. So they don't want to do that. Then you get to the international pressure and the pressure from the White House that's been building. And at the end of the day, the Israelis are willing to take a lot of international heat in combating a missile threat to their civilian population and, and to their economy and their basic viability. But, but they can't do that forever. And I think Biden took an approach which has gotten a lot of blowback domestically um, for understandable reasons. But I think he took the approach that he's taken to a lot of international relationships, which is that I'm not going to beat you up in public. Um, we're going to handle this behind closed doors And I'm going to ask you to do the right thing for the sake of our relationship. (laughs) Right. And um, for a lot of progressive parts of the Democratic Party, for people concerned about human rights, concerned about the civilian cost of this conflict and the asymmetry, that's not good enough. You know, and so you see him, I think, in today's phone call starting to pivot, partly because the Israelis have gotten a lot done, partly because that pressure is building and so I think, you know, the underlying problem is that while he and the United States may have some kind of short-term tactical leverage over the Israelis and over Netanyahu in specific, in this case, it's not clear to me how much leverage the US will have with Netanyahu once a ceasefire is achieved. Netanyahu will be back to worrying about his political future, the prospects for a fifth election. All that stuff will come to the fore, and he's not going to be very open to blandishments from Washington about what he needs to do to, to stabilize Israel's relationship with the Palestinians. And to me, that means that we're likely going to be in crisis mode, even after a ceasefire for a good while. Ben? A couple thoughts. I think
1: it's important to understand that the incentives for the Israelis or for this israeli government and for the gaza hamas palestinian leadership are pretty reciprocal that is the israelis almost never and certainly not in this case want to initiate a, a violent confrontation with hamas in gaza it's just not you know they want what they want from gaza is quiet right and so Conversely, the Gaza Hamas leadership cannot be seen to uh, not be leading violent Palestinian activity. So, when you have something like what happened in Jerusalem, which really was, you know, didn't involve Gaza at all, but you have that kind of eruption of violence and Israeli, frankly, gross overreaction, both at the Damascus Gate and particularly at Al Aqsa. The Hamas has an enormous incentive to initiate stuff, which is what happened here. Conversely, however, Hamas has very little incentive to perpetuate it because they get killed and things in Gaza get flattened and they don't actually achieve very much, whereas once the hostilities are initiated, the Israelis have a lot of incentive to keep it going because they have all these built-up military objectives over time that they can check off their list. There are a variety of exceedingly offensive uh, Israeli euphemisms for this. Uh, the most famous of which is, you know, mowing the grass or, 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 or cutting the lawn. But they, you know, they 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 regard this as something they periodically have to do, and so they once the hostilities are initiated they will you know, try to get as much of it done as they can. So you'll often have the reciprocal situation where Hamas initiates and the Israelis don't want to stop. And that's, I think, what you're seeing right now.
2: I also just want to take us away from the Israel-Hamas dyad a little bit, understanding that 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 extreme violence and the human suffering that it's causing is the focus of world attention for good reason. The conflict here is much broader and deeper. And I, you know, I think I said last week that this is a different kind of Israeli-Palestinian crisis, in part because of the intercommunal violence inside Israel um, between Arab and Jewish citizens. And I. You know, I really think it's important to understand that a ceasefire is like the lowest of low bars, frankly, to stabilize this conflict. And the Biden administration didn't want to front burner this issue. They thought it would stay on the back burner and it didn't. Now it's on the front burner. And the question is, what are they going to do to um, prevent it from interrupting everything else they're trying to do with everyone else they're trying to do it with in the region? I don't think there's any serious way to do that without engaging directly with domestic politics inside Palestine, the fight between Fatah and Hamas, the fight for succession of Mahmoud Abbas. I don't think there's any way to deal with it without recognizing the way Israel's domestic political dysfunction contributed to this crisis and without recognizing the way in which the conflict has seeped into and poisoned domestic israeli intercommunal relations and the us as a friend of israel has to speak honestly about that and force the israeli government press the israeli government to address that that is really going to be hard it's going to require political capital and you know biden's going in inclination was that this was capital he didn't want to spend the crisis has landed on his lap and we'll see you know how how much will there is to really do what I think is going to be necessary?
0: What form would that take also? I mean, we're you talking about that he would have to go from kind of appointing an envoy to trying to convene talks? I mean, do we need to start in a proposal go looking at the settlement policy? I mean what, what how does this play out if that's if 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 kind of he has to escalate up from just calling for a ceasefire at bare minimum?
2: Okay, so there were a number of Israeli actions that we could point to that have been reported on extensively over the last week that helped to exacerbate an already tense situation. Obviously, the Israeli government should not continue with those kinds of provocative actions in Jerusalem on, on the Temple Mount and so on. But beyond all that, no, it's not about reconvening negotiations. These two sides can't you know, effectively speak to each other right now they need to cultivate leadership that can speak to each other, and the societies need to confront the reality of the conflict and what their real alternatives are. And that's, that's complicated. It takes time. And I don't think that's something that a high-level special envoy can do. I think it's day-to-day spade work.
1: One other thing, Israel needs a government. The Palestinians need a new government.
2: Yeah, well, that's um, what I, that's what I meant. No, no, no. I I, <laughs> I know. I'm just
1: I'm putting a I, I'm 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 trying to be blunt about it. You know, you have uh, you've had four Israeli elections. Israel was about to form a government when this broke out. Uh, that government will probably not happen now, at least if you believe the person who was going to lead it, and. You know, it is very hard to make mature decisions about how to run an enormously complicated pair of societies that live in dialogue with one another, sometimes verbal, sometimes violent, without leadership on both sides. and right now, you have uh, Mahmoud Abbas is in the seventeenth year of his first four- year term, and Bibi Netanyahu is living. The I don't know ninth or tenth life of a cat, and you know it's not a even if they were both very v- fine leaders, and they are not, it's not a good way to run a railroad.
0: Well, you know, if you just uh, deleted the names Mahmoud Abbas and Benjamin Netanyahu from those last that last paragraph, you could be talking about the situation in our own government right now in Congress. Yeah, Mitch
1: McConnell Ooh. is living in the seventeenth year of his first four-year term. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the yeah, the difficulty of managing uh, what looked like two societies trying to occupy the same space, stalking past one another. Yeah, sounds very familiar. As we record this, I think, right guys, this the, the Congress has not voted yet. The House has not voted yet. I should say, on legislation that would establish an in- independent commission to investigate the insurrection on January sixth at the Capitol. It's not clear as of Wednesday morning how many Republican lawmakers would join Democrats in supporting the bill. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy came out opposing this bipartisan deal that had been struck. There's some, but this is also kind of like a seesaw on his part. McConnell now, Mitch McConnell, the minority leader in the Senate, has come out and said he opposes it. Um, So, Ben, let's start there with the Republicans on this who have been kind of whipsawing on their support for the bill and appear not to be on the same page in the House and the Senate, where I think there's been even another version of the legislation that's been moving. So even if we get a commission, it seems like the GOP is going to be so dead set against this or so divided on the scope of the commission and what it should and shouldn't cover. Should it go into Black Lives Matter protests? Should it talk about Antifa? That this just feels like it's being set up not to be a 9-11 style commission which i think everybody wants and sees as a gold standard but basically another benghazi committee that's just two realities two sides riven by politics and you know potentially no hope for an actual objective report
1: so first of all i want to give some credit here to uh, house republican uh, leadership of the homeland security committee which uh, came to an agreement with the Democratic leadership of the Homeland Security Committee for what I think is a pretty darn good bill. And it's closely, closely based on the 9-11 Commission. I mean, some of it is verbatim from it. The structure of it is pretty good, although everything would depend on who got appointed to it. So I think if you could imagine that Republicans in the Senate were willing to move that compromise bill, then I would disagree with you. I would say, hey, we got a lot of work to do. There are some technical problems with the bill that we can talk about, but, and it really does depend on who you appoint as chairman and vice chairman and the members of the commission. People forget this, but one of the reasons the 9-11 commission worked was that the commissioners worked well together and that they, did not divide in that sort of predictable fashion. Now, to be fair, Osama bin Laden wasn't on the 9-11 Commission, whereas on this, I think, you know, one of the problems is that the conduct of certain members of the Republican Party is very much properly on the Commission's agenda, and Republicans do get to decide who's on the Commission, at least to some degree. So... I guess I would be more optimistic than your statement would be if this bill were going to pass. The problem is that it's not clear that this bill is going to pass. McConnell's uh, decision to oppose it raises a question of whether, you know, you have, you're going to have some degree of bipartisan vote coming out of the House. So it's not clear how uh, many Republicans are going to support it. And then you it's not clear at all that you've got 10 Republicans in the Senate who are going to join Democrats to break a filibuster of this. And so I think, you know, you could end up having the exact situation you describe, not on the commission itself, but in the fight over whether to have a commission in the first place.
2: Yeah, I feel like um, part of what's going on here with McConnell is the pro-Trump, you know, wing of the party, which is the majority of the congressional delegation of the Republican Party, is seeing this as a test, right? A commission is a betrayal. So if you support a commission, it's a betrayal of Trump. And as with everything Trump, it's black and white. There's no middle ground. There's no room for compromise, right? So the question I think that members of Congress face, that Republican senators face is whether they're going to allow that absolutism to prevent everything they might ever do in Congress. Like, this is yet another thing, right? They all got attacked. They all ran for their lives. And are they going to let the Trumpist absolutism prevent anything from being done about that, except in a purely partisan Benghazi-style way, as Shane was saying? And I think you can take that question. If I, if I were a Democratic strategist, you know, I think you can take that question and like make that a, you know, that, that's part of the midterm campaign is like, we're trying to get all this stuff done and Republicans aren't, can't get anything done because they're so beholden to Trump, right? I, I think that that's probably a fight Democrats are willing to have. Um, but more than that, I think that it is a real honest to God dilemma for, Republicans who themselves have to face voters and win re-election. I know we've talked a lot about, you know, the difference between winning a primary and winning a general, but you know, not every Republican is like Lindsey Graham in a super safe Republican state. And and it's just, you know, it's hard for me to think that they don't feel at all vulnerable with this absolute stone wall against ever doing anything in Congress.
0: I wonder, and maybe this is more of a provocation than a question, so I'll just throw it out there. but I mean, presuming obviously the Democrats would love to see Republicans basically you know tear themselves in knots over this and and crush any possibility of having a commission <clears throat> at all and just blame it on you know Kevin McCarthy and blame it on Mitch McConnell, right. but there's also this argument that. Okay, even if we did come to some kind of compromise, it's really hard to believe that this is going to be just a straight down the middle, although I hate that phrase, truly objective uh, investigation. It's going to be riven by partisanship. It's going to have dual realities. So maybe it's in the Democrats' interest to say, you know what, we're not even negotiating over this anymore. Screw this. It's impossible that Republicans are going to join us in any good faith effort. We're canceling the whole thing. Why not try that?
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So so first of all, I don't think I agree with the premise that you couldn't have have a, a decent investigation here. I think first of all, I mean, the fact that the commission is going to be, assuming it passed, evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, does raise that problem. On the other hand, it's one thing to be Lindsey Graham and to act like a politician and a senator. It's another thing to be appointed to an investigative body and then refuse to investigate. And I actually think that there are among the category of people that Mitch McConnell or or, uh, the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot
1: of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Might choose to appoint. there are at least some of them that are you know, going to want to investigate things. And you only need one out of the five to vote with the other commissioners on things like subpoenas before you have a real investigation. Secondly, as with all things congressional, a huge amount of this is staff-driven. And if you... Well, and that was McConnell's objection. Right? Right. (laughs) And if you appoint a first-rate staff, that is going to have a logic of its own and so i am not convinced that there's no good investigation to be done here i'm also not convinced it's to the you know it's to the democrats advantage not to pass a bill here but to drape it around the republicans neck there's nothing bigger that they could drape around kevin mccarthy's neck than his having to testify before this commission about what his conversation with Donald Trump was. There are a bunch of Republicans who do not have good stories to tell about their activities that day, their activities in relation to these protesters. And I think part of what the Democratic subjective is here, in addition to getting to the truth, is getting to some very ugly truths about their Republican colleagues. And I think you got to pass a bill in order to do that.
2: Yeah, I mean I I guess the staff problem that you raise, Ben, is what makes me a little more skeptical and a little more in line with Shane's thinking that this, you know, if they get enough Republicans on board, now that McConnell's staked out the ground, he's staked out, which is about the staffing. You know, if they get enough Republicans on board, it's gonna be because they have some kind of bipartisan agreement on dividing the staff. And then I do think you get these alternate realities. I think that's exactly the problem. The question is whether there is still some value in it. And I mean maybe I maybe I'm just being way too modest in my ambitions here, but I feel like in an era where Democrats and Republicans live in separate information bubbles, any bipartisan entity that produces any consensus document Anything that forces notable Democrats and notable Republicans to sit in a room together and talk to each other and agree on some basic story about what reality is, is a good thing. It's good for them and it's good for the country. And maybe that's all we can hope for. And I would say it's still worthwhile.
0: Just as a last quick question, if this fails in Congress, can the president do anything as the chief executive to just create a commission?
2: He sure, can. sure. He can have a presidential commission. Right.
0: He could just he could just do this, right? And they could appoint five Democrats and five Republicans, and you know, proceed professionally.
2: The most famous recent
1: example of that was George W. Bush asked uh, Larry Silberman, the the DC Circuit Judge, and Chuck Robb, the former Democratic Senator from Virginia, to run a commission about Iraqi WMD and intelligence failures around that, and it was a terrific piece of work product. And that was an executive branch commission. The other thing is Nancy Pelosi can name this commission by herself, you know, without Republican participation, you know, much the way uh, the Benghazi commission came together. That's not exactly an attractive model, but that's doable at the majority's snap of the finger.
2: Yeah, look, I I think the real question is whether any Republican could agree with a political ambition could agree to serve on such a commission.
0: Ah, I see. So, so membership in this would be like a death knell for you.
2: And, well, you'd ha- or you'd have to be like an octogenarian retired Republican.
1: And also it wouldn't have some it, would, of those. it would not have subpoena power.
0: Well, that could be a problem, too.
1: It couldn't compel testimony.
0: You have to ask very nicely for Kevin McCarthy to come <laughs> testify.
1: Well, so the legislative version, I think, could have subpoena power. The executive version alone probably could not. Gotcha.
0: Well, you know who does have subpoena power? The Attorney General of the State of New York, Latisha James.
2: Uh huh. Yes, yeah, she, she does. can subpoena
0: you. She can subpoena uh-huh. you whoever, and her and your records. You You get a
2: subpoena, and you get a subpoena, subpoena. and you get a subpoena.
0: (laughs) Reading fear from my colleagues, uh, Sheena Jacobs and David Fahrenthold, they report, New York Attorney General Letitia James's investigation into the Trump organization is now considered a criminal matter, James's office said Tuesday night, noting that officials with the former president's company were recently apprised of the development. Quote, we have informed the Trump organization that our investigation into the company is no longer purely civil in nature, said Fabian Levy, a spokesperson for the AG. Quote, we are now actively investigating the Trump organization in a criminal capacity, along with the Manhattan District Attorney. No comment additionally at this time. Um, I do feel that we should read from the former 45th president's statement. I'm going to read this to you. Um, I have just learned through leaks in the mainstream media leaks okay after (laughs) after being under investigation from the time i came down the escalator five and a half years ago including the fake russia 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 hoax the two-year 48 million dollar no collusion muller witch hunt impeachment hoax number one impeachment hoax number two and others that the democrat new york attorney general has quote informed my organization that their quote investigation is no longer just a civil matter but also a potentially quote criminal investigation working with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. It then goes on to be mildly more coherent. We can talk about mildly. mildly. I feel like this is the paragraph he insisted on writing himself. Yeah. So, Ben, put this in context for us. Let's we'll put Trump's statement aside. But we can come back to that. How serious is a development like this that the it now has criminal implications? We talk about what that means, and also I want to get into why is the attorney general making that known?
1: Well, look, Leticia James has a long history of saying things that are not appropriate for somebody who is going to conduct an investigation of Donald Trump or the Trump Organization, including her statements while she was running for office. And I think a lot of things that people said uh, about Matt Whitaker having prejudged matters apply very much to Letitia James. and. I believe Chuck Rosenberg argued a couple years ago on Lawfare that she should be recused from this because of those statements. And I, I I do think her comments are, I don't know the propriety of the specific comment, but I think the proper amount to be saying about ongoing criminal investigations is generally zero and probably confirming them is a bad idea. That said, look. Once she was investigating this, of course it was going to turn criminal because the Trump organization is has been engaged in lots of activity that raises reasonable questions of criminal conduct. And if you start digging around in their paperwork, you're going to ask criminal questions. And so there is nothing surprising about this. It would have been surprising if it didn't happen. Obviously, we have no idea how far along the investigation is or what the specific uh, allegations that they're looking at. But I mean, ask yourself this question. Would you be surprised if the attorney general of New York or any competent law enforcement agency started you know, investigating the Trump organization and didn't find criminal questions to at least poke around about? And so I think it's the only thing that surprises me about it is that it wasn't already criminal before, which I'm not sure I quite appreciated. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think it's, you know, it's a far cry from having a criminal investigation open to bringing charges, of course. But I do think that the Trump organization is in a world of hurt.
2: I, I mean, do we know that it wasn't criminal before? Well, <laughs> I I don't
0: know. I mean, I I it, I think it's it, it's it implies that somehow and there's been reporting on this, that it had been and we reported this in our story, that the investigative team under James was pursuing a strictly civil investigation, which could still result in a lawsuit against the Trump organization or its executives. I guess that we're saying the notice from James's office was sent in late April to attorneys for the Trump organization suggested criminality could apply to actions by current and former company executives and employees if the investigation finds wrongdoing, which... I'm also kind of like, well, yeah, no, duh. Like, if you find criminal activity, presumably you might file criminal charges. So this kind of raises, again, the question, and maybe there's a political calculation here, too, to consider, like, is this just Letitia James, you know, doing this?
1: Yeah.
0: And and kind of gross, frankly, because, like, when, you know, whenever it happens on any side, we you know, it's, it's rightly criticized. And is it kind of maybe, you know, frankly, a dumb political move? Because, like, at this point, if you kind of unsheathe this and you come up with, Nothing, and then he's just going to issue another like you know statement about the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax and the escalator, and and look right.
2: Yeah, I mean, in the post reporting, you know, there's a lot made of the cooperation that's now going on between Letitia James's office and uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's office, and. Right. I mean, unless I'm completely wrong, we did think he was pursuing a yes. criminal case, right? Yeah. So, like, is there anything really new here, or is she just glomming on to what he was already doing and trying to reap the political benefits? Okay, so a couple things. First of all,
1: I don't know under New York State law what the criminal jurisdiction of the Attorney General is. I believe there is some, but you know, the frontline criminal investigation of the Trump Organization is the Manhattan DA, Cyrus Vance's investigation, which we've known uh, was a criminal investigation for, I guess, a couple of years now, because there was that fight over its grand jury subpoena related to the president's financial records. So that there is a New York State criminal investigation involving the Trump organization is nothing new whatsoever. Tish James had this Remember, this huge investigation of the NRA that resulted in that civil suit. So we know she that was a civil suit, not a criminal matter, though it alleged all kinds of conduct that, if true, was criminal. She opened some kind of an investigation and now says that there are this potential criminal liability or criminal elements. I agree with Tammy that we do not really know whether this is ancillary to the Manhattan DA's investigation whether she's taken over a piece of that and I am not I'm not knowledgeable enough about New York state criminal law to know what the what criminal jurisdiction she has or how it would relate to an ongoing grand jury investigation in Manhattan.
0: And I feel like this is a reminder for listeners too because it's been a while since we've talked about investigations of the Trump family or you know the organization or of Donald Trump. I mean there's something different about from this from the Mueller investigation, right? I mean I think you know obviously looking back now, you know Bob Mueller was never going to indict the president. um he didn't find evidence you know constituting criminal conspiracy with regards to the Russian contacts, although we found many contacts. there's plenty of evidence on the obstruction side, but we've all been over you know why he didn't charge on that. This is altogether different. This is Trump's company. It's his finances. It's potentially going back many years. And he's no longer the president. I mean, that's you know to underscore that. So it seems like the jeopardy for him here is much greater than it probably ever was when he was president being investigated for what he did in office or on the campaign.
1: Yes, absolutely. And there are other factors, too. For example, that The New York Times published that exhaustive you know, really remarkable and remarkably under-discussed gazillion-word story about the president, the Trump organization's tax approaches uh, and the aggressiveness of their of their uh, real estate valuations. So there's a whole bunch of additional matters, and also there's the fact that. The Mueller investigation was jurisdictionally limited to Russian interference with the election and coordination with the Russians by people associated with Donald Trump. This is not. And so it's a free, you know, it's an investigation that's bounded by whatever the predicate that they have established is. And as I said before, I think when you start going through Trump organization documents, You're going to find a lot to investigate.
0: All right. Let's investigate some object lessons. Tammy, do you want to go first?
2: Sure. Well, we talked about the cicadas at the top. And I have to say, I've been looking forward to Brute X, Brute for 17 years since the last time. I think these guys are awesome. They're wacky and slow and dumb and awkward and... And so when they started emerging this week, I couldn't help but go out into my garden where I've been spending a lot of time during the pandemic and taking lots of photographs. But I, I managed to get this one, which I will show you, Shane. Please don't get wigged out by this. Oh, of like this, this pale little dude emerging from his carapace. I don't know how well oh, you can that. Look at that. I can't
0: quite see it, but I can imagine it.
2: With his beady little black eyes and his little fishy legs. and. I don't know whether he's a metaphor for something. We're all coming out of COVID isolation, kind of pasty, and maybe we've gained a little extra weight. I know I have, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm stretching my wings and letting them dry in the sun and I'm going to go up and, and, and sing into the night.
0: <laughs> Just don't get eaten by a bird.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So here's my, my cicada. I haven't named him, but I will.
0: Oh, you should give him a name. Well, maybe don't get too attached because he's probably not going to yeah. be around for very long.
2: He's probably long gone actually. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's,
0: he's, he's had his fun and he's dead. Uh, Ben.
1: So this past week as things have escalated in the middle East, I have been unable to stop thinking about Tamara Kaufman Wittes's favorite article in the history of the Onion.
2: Oh, I can't even laugh at that
1: article this week. It was published four twenty six two thousand seven. Middle East conflict intensifies as blah 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 etc cetera, etc, cetera. and it opens as follows: Dateline the Middle East. <laughs> With the Iraq war in its fifth year, the war in Afghanistan in its sixth, and conflict between Israel and the rest of the region continuing unabated for more than half a century, intelligence sources are warning that a new wave of violence in the Middle East may soon blah, 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 etc., etc., you know the rest. Tensions in the region are incredibly high, said U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, Ryan Crocker, who added that the same old, same old, while answering reporters' questions. We're disappointed by the events of the last few months, but we're confident that we're about to yakety-yakety-yak. And it goes on from there. It is um oh, unbelievably God. timely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and... uh. I refer you to it all.
0: When I was writing sketch comedy, we would call that a one joke sketch, but it works. It works. Because and the, actually, joke the joke doesn't get old.
2: The joke, the joke, yeah, it keeps working. The joke doesn't
1: get old. And they, the thing is, the article's pretty long, and they just do it over and oh, over right. again for each part of the Middle East, and it works every, every time.
0: time. nice. Nice. Uh well my object lesson is in part a response to the the many listeners of the podcast who and I see you and I hear you who have been tweeting a lot at me about new videos of UAPs that are being released and leaked, and this big New Yorker story, which I have not read yet. Lots of people asking me why I am not the Washington Post reporter covering the release of the UAP report that's expected next month. He's biased on this subject, people. Yeah, I he's, might be.
1: he's walled off for it because he has pre-existing known
0: views. That's right. I, I do. And they're well known. Although it is, it's, it's an intelligence action that is Uh, forcing declassification of this report. So maybe I can like jurisdictionally claim it when it (laughs) comes out. That'll be nice. Um, But I do want to flag for people to say, yes, I see you. I hear you. Thank you for all of your thoughts and prayers. But 60 Minutes did a really remarkable piece, I thought, uh, I think it was this past Sunday, Bill Whitaker was the correspondent and Graham Messick, who's one of their best national security reporters, did this, um, which broke some news because it actually had an, a new eyewitness statement from an F-18 pilot, a woman who's never spoken before. And it's it's a very good piece. It kind of like lays out everything we know about, you know, the classified UAP program at the Pentagon that, uh, you know, that uh, um, Harry Reid had funded, et cetera, et cetera. But it kind of flicks at something. And I just wanted to like kind of footstop this a little bit. And it raises a question as me thinking on something new, which is that I'm beginning to wonder whether or not the Defense Department's sudden willingness to talk about these unidentified aerial phenomenon is going to become a very convenient way for them to say there's all of this stuff out there and we're incapable of telling you what it is either because we didn't take it seriously or because we have an intelligence problem or, we, you know, we just don't know. And that calling it sort of UAP and looking like you're taking it seriously becomes a way to deflect from the embarrassment of, you know, possibly being aware of, you know, maybe adversary aircraft in your airspace and kind of not doing shit about it for a long time. And he actually, Bill Whitaker, did a very good interview with Marco Rubio, who sounded remarkably level-headed about this, who was trying to make that point that like, look, we're not coming out here and saying there are aliens. We're saying there is stuff in the sky, the military says that, and doesn't know what it is. And that is a problem. And I just am beginning to wonder if the whole new sudden religion on UAPs as a way of them saying, hey, what are you going to do? It's unidentified. Can't help you.
2: Oh, Shane, the answers are out there.
0: They are out there, but the Pentagon maybe isn't looking very hard.
2: Yeah, well, then you know it's going to be a really good TV series. I'm
1: telling you, you, the solution to this problem is a giant national investment in flashlights. (laughs) We should all like just have flashlights pointed at the sky. Those
2: little, those little laser ones that you play with your cat with. Yeah, and that would
1: just keep the skies flooded with lights. and then the little green men or the Chinese or the Russians or whoever they are, the North Koreans, whoever they are, this, it, it will be the best disinfectant. We'll, we'll, we'll smoke them out.
0: This might be—we might need a joint commission to tell us this, right? That the, you know, the yeah. hundreds of billions of dollars we've spent on sensing technology is all for shit. What we really need is like, you know, everyone to just get a flashlight and point it at yeah, the sky.
1: Point it at the sky. Yep. We'll. Uh, we'll they, they can't hide in the dark if you're. Pointing that'll the light. fool the Chinese and their <laughs> hypersonic
0: submarine drone. Whatever it is. We are going to talk about this when the report comes out. We are. And, gonna, and we are going to talk about it very seriously.
2: In fact, As we're well. all going to read the report. We're not going to make any alien jokes not, at all. There are going to be no alien jokes. Not we're even one. We're going to read the report and we're going to have a
1: wonky discussion about it. Yep.
0: I'm going to go out on a limb and say the report's going to be a big letdown. It's not going to say there's aliens. That's okay. We'll still it's not going it. to
2: not say there are aliens. It's
0: not going to not say it. Thank you. There we go. And when it happens, you will hear about it. But for now, that's the end of the podcast this week, guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can read uh, more about this podcast on our show page, lawfareblock.com. You can buy your Rational Security flashlights at lightsinthesky.lawfare.sky.com.
1: <laughs> yes, at, at com slash rational security
0: flashlights point them at the sky let's quickly get the URL up and running I can can hear the Bitcoin rolling in right now (laughs) you can follow us on Twitter at RATL security you can find us on Facebook we're still there along with other assorted UAPs oh my goodness (laughs) whenever you download the podcast please do be sure to leave a rating and a review we love to read your reviews you guys are so positive it's great. It makes us feel good. And push that share button and share it with your friends out there. Our audio engineer this week was Ian Enright. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Letitia James with her version of Fiona Apple's underappreciated classic, Criminal.
2: Oh, nice. Ooh, Very nice yeah. Apt. It
0: actually should be Donald Trump singing that song, though, when you think about it. Mm. You know, what I need is a good defense because I'm feeling like a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just you find
2: a good defense that Hey, more. guys, check out who's
0: here. Who? Low Is flying that the low-flying helicopter? Low-flying
2: helicopter.
0: Oh, he's competing with your cicadas for your attention,
2: Tammy.
0: <laughs> he missed me. He missed you, too. He missed you. Well, if Sophia Yam wants to come and chime in here, you could have, like, a symphony. That would be great. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tomorrow Coffin Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Go find some cicadas, be nice to them.